Hey there. Welcome back to We've Been Had, song-by-song walk through the uh, songs of Uncle Tupelo. I'm Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, yeah, this is our second episode. We are hitting the second group of songs on the album No Depression. These would be the songs No Depression, Factory Belt, and Whiskey Bottle. Um, So uplifting. Yeah, I I feel like... Song title alone. We're going to just... We're gonna have a lot of fun. You really see, you really see what you're getting into just from the song titles. Um, so one thing I was gonna ask you about, like last time we started out talking about our way into the band, and okay, so like we we got in the door, then we just kind of left it there. So like taking that further, what was uh, what was your pathway then afterwards? Like what, what's your journey as an Uncle Tupelo fan? Yeah. Good question. I think my journey was Trace, AM, Anodyne. I think that's the order. Um, and then I think when I was was a senior in college, uh, a being there came out. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. Seemed, yeah. And so, you know, since you were there, I'm sure you remember this, but during that same period, one of our mutual friends, Tom, was was like a devotee to Rev 105. Oh God, yeah. And so he would get all these free tickets. Like, I don't know how they didn't cut him off, but he was, Tom was awash in free tickets. So we, we got to go to a lot of these early Wilco and early Sunbolt shows, which thinking back on it, it was really cool because they played a lot of uncle Tupelo songs. Yeah. And, and Wilco at that point was basically, you know, that version of uncle Tupelo just without Jay Farrar. Right. It was essentially anodyne without Farrar. Yeah. Yeah, and then, I don't know, like, did you keep the fire burning through the years? Uh, well, you I, go first. I, I did keep the fire burning, um, which which cost me cost me a little bit since I own about four <laughs> J for our solo albums that I'm never going to listen to. But, I guess that, that uh, what was it, Laminated Cat? Laminated or, Fur. Laminated Fur. Loose Fur. Loose Lamin- Fur, yes. Laminated Cat was the song. Yeah, that yeah, was. That was a letdown. That, uh, that, that. Yeah, uh, some mystiques started to crumble around then. No es bueno. Well, and so that's the thing. Like, I I think I had kind of a similar trajectory, um, you know, maybe spent, maybe went in harder on, like, trying to, you know, basically built a band around trying to be Uncle Tupelo for a while. Um, But around the time that Loose Fur album came out, I just kind of got tired of Wilco, got tired of you know i had already kind of like i don't know i i I, if asked i would have stuck up for uncle tupelo as a band but like i had just quit listening to them because i'd heard the albums so much that like you know i just felt like there wasn't anything there for me you know so what that did was like leave me in a space where i could like re come back to it now like with some time away and be like oh yeah this is why i liked this this was good stuff yeah it's that i mean it's just a really interesting exercise well all right then let's uh let's get started let's dig into no depression the song on no depression the album i was i was thinking i don't think i actually listened to the uh carter family uh, original version of this song, which is No Depression in Heaven. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, interestingly, also a Sheryl Crow version. She keeps the No Depression in Heaven. Really? Yeah. Not a great song, uh, <laughs> per se, but uh, but you know, she's a little more OG with it. Um, and I, I was just, just curious, why do you think they dropped that that part of the title? I don't know, but that... I mean, I guess my my gut answer would be to make it less religious, but the you know the lyrics are still hella religious. Yeah, and uh, they they also omitted one of the verses that's in the Carter family song. What's in that verse? Well, it's it's light. It's uh, in that bright land. There'll be no hunger, no orphan children crying for bread, no weeping widows, toil or struggle. No shrouds, no coffin, and no death. Holy shit. Yeah, dark. So I can see why they cut that. 
I don't know. That it's it's interesting. I the whole religion angle actually really stuck out at me that like it's a it's an extremely religious song and in other covers of theirs they would go back and cover songs that were about religion pretty freak you know like like at least a third of the songs on march are pretty religious um in their originals there's there's hardly any religion at all and so that i don't know that just makes it weird to me then that they would trim a mention of heaven from the title of no depression but you know, and and I guess trim a weird verse, but but keep, you know, a song about the uh, the whole thing is about religion. Yeah, and I wonder if that is somewhat a function of of like the type of music they were trying to play. A lot of that was religious focused. Yeah, because when you're recording those songs, especially in the South, oh, that was a big. Oh, that's oh, Johnny Cash has got a huge collection of religious songs. Yeah, the Leuven Brothers are just all. You know, all really, they'd like park a song and preach at you. Yeah. And, and then try to murder one another. <laughs> so Uncle Tupelo lived up to that. That's um, true. Yeah. I guess I'd, I'd never put two and two together. But. Well, another thing with the title, like since you bring up the fact that they changed the title, I, I was going to ask you what you thought that. So this is a, you know, this song is a cover. Uh, it's the first cover they do. You know, at least if you're going through by recording order and they take the title of this cover and name the album after it. And then that kind of turns into the name of a magazine and kind of this catch all. Yeah, movement. Yeah. And just how weird is that? Well, especially weird when you consider, I presume the song was written about the Great Depression during the Great Depression. So it's a little weird that, you know, if you live through the Great Depression, that that then becomes this the name of this movement for you know 20 something 20 something kids who were trying to keep it real drinking you know, PBR and yeah. cowboy hats. Yeah, I mean the uncharitable way to look at it would be that they're kind of, you know, it's a, it's a loaded word but in a weird way they're kind of like appropriating like the suffering of actual people in the depression to like signify like yeah, we're we're country. I mean I'm, I'm guessing if you were an oaky yeah. And you're probably not expecting that to be appropriated. Yeah, exactly. like nobody's going to be like, this is so awesome. I want to make this my motif. Well, I, so I think like uh, we're out in the weeds now, but I think just like throughout arts, there's this weird repeating pattern that the cultures that get appropriated are a lot of times cultures that suffer and try to find some way to make suffering bearable. And then like, some outside group comes along and is like, hey, that's cool. You know, and that that's basically the relationship of white America with black America for hundreds of years. You know, this is the rare case where it's white people getting their stuff appropriated. Yeah, it just is it's a strange, strange thing when you sit down and, and think about it. But yeah. as I'm listening to this, I just you know, I, I just am struck by and I guess kind of wondering why I was so into this as a twenty one or twenty two year old, because it's really dark yeah and i didn't at least in that i mean not that my life is you know dark now but uh at that point in time i, I mean i was a college student i was living in the middle of iowa it's mm-hmm. not i was not being wronged or i was not working on a factory belt okay but by the same token the time they were singing this their lives weren't that bad either you know like like I, I, and honestly, like, I don't want to sound like I'm shitting on them because I'm not. And, you know, everyone, when you're that age, I think you think you're suffering more than you are. But like, realistically, you know, those guys were not living like depression style lives. I don't think they were living nearly as bad of lives as the world that their songs <laughs> presents. Well, it'd be, it'd be difficult to actually live in that Uncle Tupelo universe. Yeah. Yeah. But the, uh, I just... Especially since it, I I didn't don't think I even knew it was a cover until I guess subconsciously maybe I knew it was a cover, but yeah. I never gone back and did any research. And if you're looking for a real fun, uplifting Google hole, just take a look at the Wikipedia picture of the Carter family. It is like it is like the most joyless photo. Okay, I may have to edit out a pause here as I look this up. So this is just. Carter family, Google. Yeah, the Wikipedia entry. Uh, holy shit. 
Uh, and they have an auto harp. Yeah. Um, so to describe this, uh, or you could Google this too, but uh, it's a picture of A.P. Carter, Mother Maybell, and Sarah Carter in 1927. And uh, I so Sarah Carter has like a faint smile on her face, I think, but I also think A.P. might like slap her in the head yeah, for smiling. And, and Mother Maybell is not having any of this happiness bullshit. So we, for whatever reason, my parents had an auto harp. Okay. Yeah. No one in our family knew how to play it. I've never, I'd never seen anyone open it, but we moved it at least four times. Do they still have it? Probably. Uh, so do you, do you have to tune an auto harp? You must. I would assume so. Yeah. It's got, I think you gotta, you gotta track this down. <laughs> this has to be, I think this, you've got a summer project to learn the auto harp. That that is not going to be a particularly fruitful project. <laughs> well, okay. Speaking of instruments, though, um, what do you make of the instrumentation? Of no depression. So I have two thoughts. I don't know if you uh, if you went with the original uh, No Depression on Spotify or the bonus edition. I, I think I've bounced back and forth between the two. So the bonus edition has the demo version. Oh, okay, I didn't of this I, song and. Did, that one sounds a lot like they're trying to replicate the original sound. Okay. Um, except they've got, I don't, I don't think the Carter family had a banjo, but it's got, it's just a really stripped down version, okay. even more stripped down than the one that's on the album. Huh? It's just, it's kind of an interesting, you know, go back and listen to it. I think you'll, you, it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition between the two. I, I, I feel like I didn't do my homework by not like that. Um, that's, that is really interesting. Yeah, because when you listen to the original one, it's it's really kind of old timey. Oh, brother, we're out there, we're out thou style. Yeah. of delivery. Yeah, and you know, I think they did a good job of modernizing it. What What is your take? As since you're the you're the de facto music music theory expert, I like it. It's it's interesting in the like the way it sits in the album. Like it jumps out at me that there's no drums on this one. Um, because Mike Heidorn has such a presence, you know, in the, the first three songs. And then this one, like, suddenly there's no drum part at all. And that, that grabs your ears. And I, I think that's a thing more bands, that's a tactic that not enough bands do, is, like, drastically changing the sound halfway through the album just to keep everything from sounding the same. So good on them there. I, I, I don't think there's an electric guitar anywhere in it. Um, I think it's just Farrar like flat picking the hell out of an acoustic, and that, you know, so that's another one of his like quiet skills that no one I don't underutilized. Know. Really. Yeah, yeah, like he gets he's so good at it, he gets no respect. And uh, we talked last time about how the one thing Tweedy is really good at at this stage is like background harmonies and you know like mixing his voice, and like I think this is you know a song where he does that really well. I mean, there are parts where he's singing and you can't even tell that there's another person singing. It's yeah. so seamless. Yeah. It's speaking of the Lubin brothers. Uh, there's that concept of blood harmony. Yeah. Where if you're, if you're brothers, you have this like natural intuition of, of tone and pitch that the other person is singing. And yeah. I, I feel like this gets really close to that. These guys really, especially early on, and it's weird because I feel like it decayed a little in the later albums, but like the first two albums, like they just, they can complement each other so well. Maybe, I don't know, we talked last time about how they had probably, you know, this was being recorded right after a ton of touring. And so like they probably just had every performance detail, like just wired down just from practice. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good song. It's tougher to play than you'd think too like that uh that first band i had that was very uncle tupeloid uh one of the first times we got together we tried to record learn the chords and tried to record our own version of no depression and it's it's an easy song to play there are like three chords but it's really hard to keep it from sounding just sing-songy and stupid and you know tweedy has this like boom 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 bass that works really well in the song but uh it's really easy to make that sound just like stupid clown bass I don't know. Especially it's it's really hard to finger pick that that simple of a pattern but make it sound complex. Yeah. But uh yeah, no it's a it's an interesting one. I I mean I 
I spent most of the time thinking about it just, and it just really struck me that how Ferrar centric this album is so yes. far. Like all three of the songs we're looking at today, they're all. Yeah. It just, you really is, you know, I, I guess I knew there was an evolution of Ferrar being the dominant songwriter and then yeah. Tweety slowly coming up the ranks, but this it really hits you with the first, what, six songs that we've, We've done our for our songs. I, I think there was one Tweety song last week, but oh, that, you're that's, right. that's yes. one out of six. Yeah, it's uh, it just hits you with a lot of Ferrar. Yeah, he's a little man with a big impact. Yeah, uh, I as I was looking for just articles, uh, it's kind of interesting to read. And this was actually from the most recent Sunvolt tour. One of the columnists from the Winston-Salem Journal said that Jay Farrar's voice sounds homegrown, like it sprouted from the dark soil of the Midwest, <laughs> alongside the corn and soybeans that surround his hometown. And I kind of like that. Like, ah. it does, I mean, I don't know if he sounds homegrown. I don't know what everyone else from Belleville, <laughs> Illinois sounds like, but, but the uh, the dark soil of the Midwest really really hit me. I, that's interesting too, because that, uh, that kind of circles around to a thing that's always on my mind that like, there's this idea in, you know, in, in art and in music that you're looking for authenticity. Frankly, I think them covering a Carter family song is partly, you know, this like attempt to stake out, like see how authentic we are, but they have this natural advantage that Jay Ferrara's voice just for whatever reason radiates authenticity, whether it's earned or not. He just, he sounds like, you know, like this guy says, he sounds like he came out of the earth of the Midwest. And like, I don't know, like if you're a band, you're just lucky to have an asset like that, I guess. Yeah. And, and it's hard to pull off an aesthetic that like that, like being, you know, earnest Midwest uh, alt country rockers without really owning it. Yeah. Like unless you're Brian Henneman, who also seems like was born as a, you know, was either someone's like, I need to manufacture... <laughs> what does an older alt-rock guy look like? Here's Brian Henneman. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Yeah. The thing I get a kick out of, though, um, you know, it's so like those two guys are both musicians that I love and both, like, just kind of radiate this Midwestern authenticity. But, like, if you think about it, Prince was born in the Midwest at around the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, just the, just this idea of Midwestern is kind of, it's not that it's artificial, but it's it's very conditional. I noticed you didn't bring up 311 from your home state as, <laughs> as a Midwestern I guess? salt of the earth, uh, you know, rap rock fusion band. But, but I mean, they are they're you know, they, they cut their teeth in Omaha. You can't get more, can't get more corn fed than that. That's true. That's yeah. true. You play the ranch bowl and you're pretty you're <laughs> legit. They, I bet, I bet their practice space was at least as close to like actual agriculture as uncle two. <laughs> point oh <laughs> uh, i don't know anything else on no depression no i don't think so all right well let's uh let's take a break and come back and we are back um ready to move into the factory belt What's uh, what's your stance on the factory belt? Uh, well, I mean, I've never actually worked in a factory, so <laughs> I I can't speak to the actual belt. But um, I mean, one of the things that struck me listening to this song is is kind of the their use of the pause. Yeah, uh, which I think we talked about last week a little bit was the timing of you know it almost feels like they jam as much different sounds to the end of the beat. And then they take a really, like a pause, yeah. And it really, it, it really gives you time to reset, and it's really a neat feature. I really like it. Yeah, it's cool, and it, yeah, it's it's interesting to me that like moving through the song, the first three song, or moving through the album, the first three songs lean on that. Then no depression, they take a break, and then here it's like right back, like riff and pause and riff and pause, and I, uh, you know, I guess they just they knew that they had a knew they had a good tool, and they were going to keep using it. It's kind of, it's sort of a, like a punk thing too. Like it, it's not always a pause, but sometimes the, the music will stop and then there'll be a, like a drum part yeah. that cues you into the next, the next chorus and verse. Yeah. And here it's, it's just an interesting kind of riff on that where it's like everything stops and then starts again. And it just, it, it really, 
I don't know. I just, this song especially, I really noticed it. Yeah, same. I went back and read a few more reviews from when this came out. And you know, we mentioned the Minutemen in passing last time. But I, I noticed that in the early reviews of this, uh, the Minutemen get brought up a lot because of the timing and you know the, the games with pauses. And I was never enough of a Minutemen fan at the time to, to be like, oh, yeah, well, clearly that's what they're doing. But like, I, I guess other people were picking up on that. Yeah, the interesting thing about the Minutemen, at least for me, is like Mike Watt is a really good bass player. Like he has yeah. a really unique style of bass. Yeah, and the D Boone's guitar is really cool. It just the vocal delivery just drives me bananas. It's yeah, I I basically like everything about the Minutemen except their music. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I think they seem like cool, cool guys. I love just their ethos, but I never, ever sit down and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to curl up with the Minutemen. Yeah, it just isn't. It, it's never really clicked for me. Um, and one thing that's interesting, I think it was, I'm not even sure who was interviewing. It might have been Mark Marin was interviewing Mike Watt. And like Mike Watt's vocal delivery, like even when he's speaking. Yeah. <laughs> is just annoying as shit. <laughs> like the way he talks is just, you're like, okay. <laughs> so do you think there's an alternate universe where uncle Tupelo makes this album and doesn't put no depression on it? And maybe Tweety is less bouncy on the bass parts and people don't even call them a, a cow punk band. And they just say, Oh yeah, it's like the Minutemen and dinosaur junior. And, and that's just how they're known. For sure. And I, that's, I wonder if that was intentional. Like they put like, okay, this album's getting a little too, getting a little too into punk. Like yeah. let's put a, let's put a country standard in the middle of it yeah. to break things up and, and make sure that we're, we're paying homage to, to what we're trying to be. And then there's a lead belly song at the end too. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, like I, that, 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 yeah, that's pretty common. I think I mean not you know and again like I don't mean to sound like that's like oh they're phonies but like they put some thought into that and there's nothing wrong with putting some thought into that yeah Uh, interestingly when I was listening to this as a 22 year old um you know I had zero zero I didn't know who the Minutemen were I had no way I knew who Lead Belly was yeah like Carter family no way so it's interesting now going back, listening to it and thinking about those influences and those decisions. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're 22, you're just kind of experiencing it like, Hey, this doesn't sound like, you know, Soundgarden. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, like shit talk the dead, but you know, like <laughs> Soundgarden was, was fairly big and. and yeah. That. And they they were just kind of pretty close to like the baseline standard nineties sound. So my, my one beef with this song, like I, I think this is, you know, musically, I think this is as good as anything on here, except I think the ending of this song <laughs> is awful. I think like, it, it seems like they just had no idea how to end it. And the engineers were like, ah, just hit some shit and we'll put some noises over it. And yeah, that, that is weird. Uh, it's, it's almost like the, you know, like Wilco likes to do that where the song just breaks down in the middle. Yeah. But then it comes back together. Yeah. Like this one just never comes back together. Like it's just <laughs> like, eh, fuck it, print. Uh, you know, but it's interesting that you point that out because like I always liked that, that that was a thing Wilco would do. And it never occurred to me that maybe that was like a continuation of, you know, maybe, maybe Tweety also does not like the ending of this and was like, well, it's good to break it down but what if you know do we have to leave it there yeah maybe i mean not to not to uh bite your alternate alternative universe take but i was wondering is there like a is there an alternative universe where this song is like a call to arms for factory workers yeah like you know like i'm i'm reading like end of fountainhead like you know howard Rourke blows up a building yeah like it's time to lay this burden down right yeah stop messing around don't want to go to the grave without a sound. Yeah. Like, you know, it's almost like guns of Brixton. Yeah. You know? Like All right, the other thing that the other like 
angry song connection that really jumped out at me. There's the line about give the soul a place to rest, not to ride on a factory belt. And I think that's kind of a cousin line to uh, that Tennessee Ernie Ford song, 16 tons, where he says, St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. You know, you've both got these songs about the machine owns you. um, And they're both pretty angry. You know, 16 tons also sounds like a song that's, (laughs) <laughs> that you hear at the start of like the the rally where people go and grab their pitchforks and torches. Yeah, the re- the rally where Billy Bragg's also playing acoustic guitar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Another question I had: that Tennessee Henry Ford song, like it, it's an angry song about you know country life in quotes. Uh, but Tennessee Henry Ford was like the footage of him doing that song. He's like this fancy dude. His hair is slicked back. He's wearing a suit. He's, you know, he's got a fancy mustache. He's snapping his fingers. And so like it comes off a little bit that he's slumming. And I do wonder if there's a little bit of that with Tweedy and Farrar singing this song, or I guess Farrar and Tweedy singing this song. Um, Jay Farrar had not, He's not speaking from personal experience when he talks about what seven years of factory belt does to your soul. Yeah, uh, I guess I I would just to play devil's advocate. I mean, maybe, you know, they grew up in a, a working class town. Maybe they had friends or relatives that were that were working the. Probably. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's what they're getting at is, you know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take much to to see how like a job like that could grind somebody down. It's true. And yeah, I mean the, the, the counter argument I thought of, you know, when I first had that thought, the, the second thing I thought was like, well, I was only a janitor for three months and you know, I'm still complaining about it like 20 years later. Um, yeah. Just a side note. I'm still disappointed with you for not taking their offer to, swim in the cooling tank of the <laughs> nuclear power plant to clean it. I, I like to uh, hoard my um, reserved radiation exposure. I'm just saying it's a lost opportunity. Uh, I know. I know. Oh, yeah. So, you know, if, if we keep talking about the, uh, the trilogy of uncle Tupelo concerns, you know, and one of them is work sucks. This is banner song for that. Yeah. It's so it's like, uh, it's like a three-legged stool with work sucks. I don't like the man, and then like casual alcoholism. Yep. That that's sort of your those yeah. are your wells. Yeah, I, maybe like sub in like or you know living in a small town would kind of like be. I guess that's just kind of the background radiation for all of those, you know. And that that's kind of in the background here too. Well, so I mean that's that's kind of interesting. So like you grew up in a. A small town like I moved to the suburbs when I was in high school so I don't feel like I have this authenticity but when you were growing up did you see people that got out of the small town and people that stayed and the difference in the two kind of the paths that they took um yeah and it was it was enlightening I guess um if you got out there was resentment and the the town I lived in it was a college town and so there was I knew something was up at the time, but I didn't know the words for it, but there was definitely like a townie and schooly thing. Um, and townies resented the hell out of like all the educated folks, you know, who worked at the school who came in from somewhere else. And it is weird because like uh, most of my friends were affiliated with the school and uh, I don't know, it was weird to like hang out with people who lived on my end of town. Um, hear them rail about you know those egg-headed assholes up on the hill and then i'd go and hang out with the egg-headed assholes on the hill and they were awesome people small towns are hostile places i guess is, <laughs> is what i'm getting at here so i think changing the subject a little but there are some pretty great lyrics in this song i think and there's this thing too where like a lot of the lyrics that jump out at me is great when i'm listening like if you just write if you write them down they don't look like much but like with that voice delivering them they get elevated like farrar and tweety yelling looks like it's time to lay this burden down just that's magic yeah and it's it it just is it's really well crafted throughout the song um you know i've 
I just really, uh, I really like it. You can see it on faces from, from the bar stool to the door. Yeah. It's, it's just really, it, it feels really bleak and it's, the words are kind of bleak, but when you sing it in that style, it adds this like despair to it. That's really, really cool. Yeah. It's weird. Like trying to figure out exactly what, is conveyed by the words and the tone of voice. I don't know. There's this weird combo of like, things are sad, but we can really fuck shit up if we have to. Yeah. And I guess that's what makes it work. Like, it's not like, you know, I I guess this circles back around to what you were saying at the start, where this sounds like a song that's like rallying people to rise up. And like, there's just this buried level of fury in a lot of the delivery that like makes the sadness bearable because it sounds like we're going to act on this. Yeah. Things are going to change. Yeah. That's what I got for Factory Belt. You got it? Yeah, no, no, I think that's good. All right, let's take a break. And we're back, ready to bust open the whiskey bottle. Excellent. This is a long-ass song. This thing is... Almost five minutes long, and most of the other songs we've talked about have been around three minutes. Yeah, uh, just before we before we start draining the whiskey bottle, I don't know <laughs> if you if you read the uh, Gumbo Pages uh, little like story before the tabs. And no, no, it's it's fascinating because it's this guy trying to obtain a the Uncle Tupelo cover of Cortez the Killer. What? Yeah. Holy uh, shit! Uh, <laughs> right. And it's a, I mean, first of all, I, I would absolutely like to hear that, yeah. but your uncle Tupelo, right? You're like, God, you know, our set's just too much sun and fun. <laughs> what is there a, is there a Neil Young, a, a really long Neil Young song about genocide that we can throw in? Let's uh, do it. I mean, so there's two things with that. Like last time around we talked about, um, Farrar as like the guitar monster and you know how like he could just have done that. And like, I would love to hear him just go nuts on Cortez, the killer, you know, like 10 minutes of angry guitar. But at the same time, (laughs) Cortez, the killer has all those weird, like weird Jamaican voice parts that sound bad when Neil Young is singing them, but imagine (laughs) Jay So I think on, one of the J for our solo albums has a different Neil Young cover. And I, now I can't remember what it is. I want to say it's, uh, I'm not gonna be able to remember. It, it seems like an odd thing. And I totally get it because in that time period, you know, you were sort of like, okay, who has a tape of this show where yeah. they did this song, but reading back on it now where we essentially have access to you know, the entire catalog of recorded music on our phones it's yeah. just it's interesting to read this back and forth about this guy trying to and he's he said something like i haven't been able to track down the full recording but i've got i've got jay farrar playing the chords in their warm-up what at a show so like somebody had recorded like their sound check okay yeah weird just, just a, a different time sorry to derail the derail the the uh, the direction. Oh, that was a very worthy derail. Um, but yeah, so whiskey bottle. Whiskey bottle. I wouldn't ahead. think you'd be able to come up with angst by just starting a song with five words. Like, <laughs> yeah. Persuaded, paraded, inebriated, in doubt. So I, I, when I was an undergrad, I really wanted to do creative writing. And just by the, the cycle, the way things shook out, the only creative writing class I could take was a poetry class and, and I never really gave a crap about poetry, but I, you know, that was what was available. So that's what I took. So I ended up learning way more about poetry than I cared to. But the one thing I came out of that class with is like poetry is all about being as efficient as possible with your use of language, you know, and like conveying maximum emotion or information with as few words. And like, that's what we got here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really gold though. No, it's you, you think if you parse each one of them out, you know, persuaded, which to me means that you feel like you're you're being talked into something that yeah. you're not really into. Paraded, like you're on tour and you're doing the dog and pony show. I mean, inebriated is if you 
ever listen to an Uncle Tupelo <laughs> song. That's pretty obvious. And then In Doubt, just for me, captures kind of that self-doubt that we all have sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. that's just the first line of the song. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's a great first line. I, I think this song is, if you want your argument for Jay Farrar being able to write great, at least great lines or great sets of lines, I think this song is, you know, exhibit A for like early period. because It opens that well and they're just, there's so many great repeating phrases, the, the not forever, just for now. Like I end up, that's the thing that I say to myself a lot if I, you know, I don't know if there's some situation I don't like, well, that's not forever. That's just for now. It's, it's almost meditative. Yeah. Like, you know, all things must pass. Yeah, exactly. I, it's not my favorite set of Uncle Tupelo lines, but it's close. The bit about I can't forget the sound because it's here to stay. The sound of people chasing money and money getting away. That's fantastic. That is just a motherfucker of, uh, you know, I guess that's not just a line. That's that's a verse. That's, yeah. And reality, too. Yeah, like you, you know, you. I think we've all had the experience of feeling like we we just can't get ahead. Well, and so if you tie that back to the first line, like this, I kind of missed it, I guess, until you pointed it out. But the, the first line, really, if you look at it, sounds like a person who feels like they've been screwed over, and they've been sold a crock of, crock of shit. And I don't know, this song is really. I don't even know if they knew it when they wrote it, but this song seems like it's about people who have really been fucked over by capitalism and are feeling awful about it. Um, and maybe don't know, don't, they don't know what got them, I guess. And that's exactly how I would describe the small town experience, to be honest. That's, you know, it was just, you're getting screwed over by market forces that you don't, comprehend um you don't know what it is that's killing your town but you know something is and i don't know yeah it's uh so i guess i was i've never really thought about this before but do you think the so there's this line that says because there's one too many faces with dollar signs smiles yeah and then it says i gotta find the shortest path to the bar for a while is that what do you think that means? I, I mean, I look at that again as he's tired of people trying to sell him shit. He just wants to get drunk to get away from it. So like the, the kind of used car salesman personality. Exactly. Like I'm going to go have my whatever Jack and Coke and. Yeah. Uh, the alternate would be, um, so like the long cut on Anodyne was, I think one of the first, Uncle Tupelo songs that I really loved. And there's all the, all the repeated line there about looking for the shortest path. So with that in head in my head, and then this bit where he's looking for the shortest path, I just assume that in the entire band, there's this obsession with finding the shortest path between two points. You know, they want to be efficient walkers. They, they all use ways now. It's, it's yeah. interesting you bring that up because I've read a quote uh, from Farrar when he was recording trace and he was driving from St. Louis to Minneapolis uh, because they were, I think they were cannonballs because I think they recorded it at Pachyderm. Yeah. And he said he took, he would take Highway 61 all the way up, which follows the Mississippi River. Yeah. Uh, because he liked the scenery. And so, like, I guess I always thought that the long cut meant that you took, you took, like, even though I think the long cut might be a Tweety song, but you took the, you know, the long cut was like the, it's like the uh, the scenic route. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It, it's too bad JFR didn't have ways then, because I don't think <laughs> Highway 61 is the fastest way to get from St. Louis to Minneapolis. You know, the, if they were jamming a Kano back then, ways isn't jamming a Kano. That's they, true. They wouldn't, have, they, they wouldn't have been down with that. This is, this is true. Another lyrical thing, when we were talking about No Depression, was saying that like they, they hit religion a lot in covers, but rarely in originals. And like they they talk about Jesus in this song, but as you know, something that Jesus is like the whiskey bottle is over Jesus. And when they do bring religion up, it's like, yeah, it's not as good as getting drunk. I think it's more of a, a commentary about how people are dealing with getting screwed over than than their personal opinion, yeah. right? So, so it's just they're they're like reporting from the front lines, like, well, sixty percent choose the whiskey bottle over forty percent Jesus. Correct. Correct. It's two of three doctors agree <laughs> that the whiskey bottle is preferable to Jesus. That makes sense. 
Oh, we didn't really talk about the uh, just the sound of this song. It's it's interesting to me. Like it starts out so quiet and gets so big. I'd never noticed that they how much they play with volume and timing. Yeah, uh, you know, I I guess I sort of knew they played with with timing, just the style of music that they play, but but just that slow build of of guitar and sound that yeah. really it's really powerful. I think that's what separates a good band from a bad band or, you know, it's an important thing that separates anyway, is just knowing how to actually use dynamics and like not hitting you at 10 all the time with no, you know, like, I don't know. The slow build in this song is just great. Have you heard the, I think it's Sunvolt at this point, but the Sunvolt version of uh, Holocaust yeah. by Big Star. Yeah. Where they really like, I feel like that's like the A plus example of, slow build and then at the end it's just these really powerful sad chords yeah. that really really always get me I, yeah I, that I, that sunvolt version of that song might be the saddest recording <laughs> in the english language yeah it's it, it's not a light one but it's it, i mean if their intent was to was to really make you feel something yeah. with that the the slow build up really does it it's almost like a it's almost like a low song almost yeah like that's that's kind of what I what I get. I mean, before low, obviously, but yeah. but that's kind of low does a lot of that kind of you know, building chords. And I think you're dead right. Yeah. I oh. mean, have you ever seen Alan Sparhawk and Jay Farrar in the same place? And no, but <sighs> Alan Sparhawk plausibly could be. If you told me he was related to the Boquist brothers, I'd say, yeah, okay, I believe that. He looks like them. He's Dade Boquist. <laughs> Somewhere in my notes, I, I don't, I think it was for a song we already talked about, but, uh, oh, it was in Factory Belt. I had a note pointing out that uh, when they recorded that, I believed that Jay Farrar was working in his mom's bookstore. Um, and so I was wondering if Wade and Dade also worked in the bookstore. And yeah. I had no way of knowing that. I just, if Wade and Dade aren't selling bait somewhere, <laughs> I feel like there's no justice in this universe. They have to be at least in business together. Yeah. Like, know, like that. Something. <laughs> they could be like, in Smokey and the Bandit, they could be like the, the brothers that people, you know, they make strange bets with people and they're like, Wade and Dade say you can't get this case of Coors. They're thirsty in Atlanta. There's beer in Texarkana. <laughs> It's a concise mission statement. No, it's uh, and it it weirdly is a plot that works. Right. I I feel like, and I will stand by this. The Sally Field should have won an Oscar for <laughs> that scene where she she gives that guy the finger yeah, as they peel out. And, My God, that's that's I, cinema. You know, there there was a point. I used to be really into uh, the Grand Theft Auto games, and there there was a point when I just kind of I was like, yeah, I don't. I don't know. It just, they stopped being fun. But if they made like a Grand Theft Auto 70s South where you could like do Smokey and the Bandit missions and Dukes of Hazard missions. Yeah. I can't like, I would, I would buy a new console just to play that game. Yeah. I I think the Dukes of Hazard missions aren't going to be a lot of fun for you because it's just like it, it's like, it's like, okay, we've got this stock footage of a, of a you know GTO jump on a creek. How do we work this into a plot? <laughs> but it's a video game, so it's just you know you, Roscoe's chasing you, and you gotta do the jump. The game writes itself. As a, as a charger, I think not a GTO. Oh, Sorry, damn it. We we demand automotive accuracy. There's I, I've got this in all caps in my notes here. We we haven't even mentioned my favorite thing about the song. What is it? It is Jay Farrar just bellowing. Liquor and guns. That's America. <laughs> Indeed. I I wonder if you would be willing to tell us where that sign is so that we could <laughs> steal it. Yeah. And like, I have to believe that's a real sign. It is. I, well, I have no doubt it's a real sign. I mean, like, if it's not, I don't want to know that. I just, I, I need that to be. It's one of those things where it like really shouldn't be legal. Like, you know, but you know what it is, right? Yeah. Like, it's like liquor and fireworks. Yeah. Like, not great together, but I guarantee there's somewhere where you can get a 30-pack of Strohs and a, you know, gross of black cats. 
Well, you know, growing up in Nebraska, um, one of our stereotypes about neighboring states was that Missouri was the state where everything was legal. Um, so, you know, maybe it's somewhere in suburban St. Louis. That you can- I, I can attest that when I was a kid growing up in eastern Iowa, uh, I was part of a run with my father to drive to Missouri which is only a couple of hours, but drive to Missouri to get fireworks. Sure. Yeah. That was like, that's where you go. Like anything goes. Yeah. And you, you had to get about six inches over the border before the firework, before the firework stand started to pop up. Exactly. Oh, liquor and gun. That I like the name of our show, but (laughs) that would have been another good choice. I'm just wondering what the business model is there. Like (laughs) liquor and guns. Well, the sign says quite clear, Chad. That's the business. Well, it's, it's like not dangerous enough for you to own a <laughs> liquor store, which, according to everything I've learned from movies, get robbed a lot. Like we're going to tack on a gun store. Well, sure. So, so they're putting NRA theory into practice. They no one's going to rob that liquor store because they're the best armed liquor store. <laughs> Only a good drunk guy with a gun can stop a bad drunk guy with a gun. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think, you know, quad s demonstratum. Yeah. If that store is not called Lapierre's, <laughs> like there should be a there should be a fucking investigation. Is that? I agree. <laughs> oh, I am amazed at how much I've been laughing at like the saddest song. Uncle Tupac yeah, recorded. Yeah, right. Well, maybe that's our coping mechanism. Exactly. We're we're uh we're trying to we're trying to find our shortest path to the metaphorical <laughs> bar, which sure. is through laughter. Very nice. Oh, you got anything else on on whiskey bottle? It, just one one line that I always I never really picked up on before is kind of a throwaway line, but it's like uh it's the in a three hour away town. Yes. I'm okay, yeah. So I'm, it's like you're your town is so crappy that the only reason way people refer to it is like how far away it is from somewhere cool. Yeah. And it really, it, it's, it's a sad, I mean, it's sad, but it's, yeah. it's like, it, it's like, yeah, that town that's 45 minutes from Omaha. Well, so that's, I, I meant to, I actually wanted to look up and see how far it is from Belleville to like St. Louis. Cause like, I know I've heard it referred to as a suburb and I don't know. You know, and that can mean a lot of things, but I, I can't imagine that it's actually three hours from, it might be three hours from like Chicago. That would make sense. Yeah. I mean, like I know in, in Blair, we were 20 minutes from Omaha and we felt like we were just impossibly in the sticks. 20 minutes doesn't seem too bad. Once you can drive, it's not too bad. Is that farther or closer than Missouri Valley is to Omaha? Yeah. Oh God. There's that. That town, Missouri Valley, Iowa, is an Uncle Tupelo song come to life. Like, if you sprinkled magic dust over No Depression, that town would just like form up out of the. Yeah, um, the only my only interaction with Missouri Valley was like waiting out a like torrential thunderstorm in a bar called the Edge. That's that's like the best possible use of time there. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting experience. Um, I mean, I think I was the only person in there with with sleeves on my shirt. <laughs> but it was also there's also this weird deal, but like all the lights were on and they they didn't serve they were serving food because their power was out. <laughs> they're like, but we can still do French fries. Yeah. <laughs> what are you just like? Are you just messing with me because you can tell I'm like the this like hassling the non local? That could very well be. The three hour away town line. So remember last time I was, I got all worked up about how I like Jay Farrar's use of words, but think that he is often guilty of just like mangling the syntax of the English language. A long way from happiness in a three hour away town is like exhibit A. Like no one, no one would phrase it that way. This is true. But, uh, you know, it's a great line in the song, but. Yeah, it's it strikes the point, but you're correct. It's people would think you grew up speaking French or something. <laughs> yeah. And you were, yeah, it's uh, again, it's kind of Yoda esque. I don't know. Just re- I mean, you could you could literally highlight every line in this song. It's in between the dirt and disgust. There must be some air to breathe and something to believe. Yeah, this is what passes for hope. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess it it precedes your liquor and guns. But, but. 
Well, and so then he closes that verse out by like acknowledging, like, yeah, somehow life goes on in a place so insane. I don't know what that says. That says something. That's ah, like Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting. Uh, you know, this has me looking at um, Caleb Rush's of Berkeley's chords here. They're actually they're hitting some suspended chords. One suspended chord. That's... So Keith has the benefit of actually knowing what that stuff means. You, when you learn guitar, like you learn like the basic chords, and you know you usually start out learning how to finger like chords down at the end of the neck. Uh, they, um, and then you, as you go forward, you learn just like other voicings for those chords that get you a different sound. But a suspended chord then is like you know a slightly different fingering for the, the E chord that gets you a slightly different sound. And I mean it's. Not a huge deal, but like as far as songs on No Depression go, just having one suspended chord is like, wow, they're really swinging it around. So when I see that and I'm trying to play guitar, I just play another E. That's going to sound fine. That is that is 100% fine. Anything else on the whiskey bottle? No, I think, I think that's it. All right. Well, um, I would like to thank everybody for sitting through us talking about music and listening. Uh, again, I am Keith Pilly. You can find me at Twitter at Keith Pilly, K-E-I-T-H-P-I-L-L-E. Chad, you are? I am Chad Cook, and you can find me at Cook6252. And uh, please, like, if you have something to, you know, if you want to tell us we're dumb or... Please, please send that to at Keith Pilly. Just at the hell out of us. We want to be added. Um, If you dug the show, I I, I beg of you, please tell people about it or go on to iTunes and leave a review um, or I guess go to Google Play and leave a review if you do it that way. Thanks very much. We'll be back again soon with uh, the next batch of songs from No Depression. Adios.